This is The Big Sci-Fi Podcast. The biggest, most fun podcast in the galaxy. We're Adina, Brian, Chris, and Steve, and we love talking all things science fiction. This is season four, but our human adventure is just beginning as we gather around our computer consoles to discuss the science fiction of film, television, and literature. Join us on our quest for fun and fascination as we go where no podcast has gone before. Everyone has permission to come aboard the Big Sci-Fi Podcast, but make sure to find your seat fast because we're taking off in three, two, one. Hit it. This podcast is a part of the Trek Geeks Network. Greetings, star travelers and bookworms, and welcome to another episode of the Big Sci-Fi Podcast. Get ready to crack open the library as we dive into the rich, amazing world of the Star Trek Litverse. Now, joining us on this journey today are two amazing Trek novel writers, Dayton Ward and Keith DeCandido. If you are a fan of Trek Lit, you've probably come across at least some of their work because each of them has a boatload of novels and other stories to their names. And to prep for this episode, I actually started reading a few. Uh, I'm in the middle of Moments Asunder Ooh, by Dayton nice. Ward, this, you yes. know, this one. And oh, that's then, a hell of a way to start. Wow. <laughs> well, it, that's, that's one of the things I want to talk about is how do people, if they haven't, you know, how do they, they get started? And Articles of Federation yeah, by Keith. And I'm going to say, I didn't fit, I did not just because of my life, I just didn't have time to finish them, but I, I read pretty, you know, voraciously. So I will. I also got others. I got Have Tech Will Travel, this one that has some stories in it. Yeah. And they're very, and I would say these are, are very different books. You guys have very different styles, which is awesome. So I really do want to jump right into it and say, Dayton, Keith, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, we're really... I should say my last name. My last name is pronounced DeCandido, not DeCandido. Oh, am I, have I been doing that wrong? Um, I'm sorry. Yep. The, the it's okay, woman so who... is everybody else. This yeah, is this, this is this is my life. Is correcting people's. No, no, no. It's you, my you, life go ahead. too. Yes, that's Adina's life. That's I'm my sure life. Oh, see, yep, and that's 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 what you will do. And I say no, it's Mignona, and they're saying Mignona. No, it's Mignona, and yes. you know, yeah. yes, we have twenty that. years, twenty years prior to now. Everybody in my whole life, when I meet people brand new, they'd say, "Are you related to Phil?" And right. but t- it hasn't oh. happened in the last twenty I, years. Like no it one did remembers. Was, I, I'm sorry. No I'm sorry, Brian. I always think Mark Donahue, the racer. <laughs> I'll take it. Okay. Well, All so right. the first that's I think, not why we're here, though. Yeah, the first <laughs> no. thing I really wanted to, to start and kick things off is just really how did you get started writing? in the universe and was that always kind of like the career goes to write in universe versus writing other unrelated things where, where did it begin i don't know who wants to go first well i <laughs> i couldn't see what you were doing there you go Rock, first paper scissors but it's over here oh okay <laughs> <laughs> Well, so I, yeah. I grew up I grew up reading Star Trek fiction as well as obviously watching the TV shows and playing the role-playing games and reading the comic books and all that other stuff. And I always wanted to be one of the people who wrote that stuff. Um, having said that, I didn't actually get into it until I'd already established myself writing other stuff. Um, I, uh, I'd written uh, a Spider-Man novel, a couple of Buffy novels, uh, a couple of Young Hercules novels, um, and a few other things. And then was given the opportunity to pitch uh, a Star Trek novel um, to to Simon and Schuster. I was I was friends with one of the editors, John Ordover, 
Although John, John, yes, no, knowing John helped, but he didn't actually allow me to pitch anything to him until I'd already established myself elsewhere. Um, and once, once I was already had several novels under my belt, he said, all right, throw a pitch at me. I threw a pitch at him. He rejected it. And, uh, and then turned around and said, Hey, I just got the script for the last Deep Space Nine episode and they're making Worf the Federation ambassador to the Klingon empire. How'd you like to write his first adventure as, as, as an ambassador? And I said, yes. So that's how my first novel came about and everything sort of snowballed from there. So when they, when they give you something like that and they give you that opportunity, so are, are they giving you other guidance? Do you get some other kind of Bible or things to stick with or, or are you on your own to research or? There, there are Bibles for each of the TV shows, but they're functionally useless um, unless you are writing one of the first six episodes of the TV show, <laughs> after which they become horribly out of date. Um, the You do get some guidance. How much varies from project to project. Some of them are very specific. Uh, some of them are very loose. Uh, some of them are some of them you pitch yourselves and they say, yeah, go for it. Um, there's. Uh, especially with, with as big and sprawling a line as the Star Trek fiction, um, th- the answer to that question is all of the above. <laughs> uh, you, you get all sorts of ways of doing it. In the case of Diplomatic Implausibility, which was the, the, the Wharf novel I was talking about, we didn't really have anything beyond this is what's happening in DS9's finale, run with it. So I ran with it. Um, I did develop the story with John, and uh, of, the, of the editors I've worked with over there, some are more hands-on than others. Mm-hmm. Um, and some are more hands-on depending on the project. There have been several novels that I developed in concert with the editor in question. So you're talking about um, like a developmental uh, editor as opposed correct. to like a copy yeah. editor. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um others others where they just did the line they just did the line editing and that was it. You know, it varies. Cool. Dayton, how did you get involved? Uh not at all like Keith. Um, I had no aspirations of being a novel writer of any kind. Um, I read a lot of them. I read them when I read all the, the Trek stuff that came out when I was a kid and was reading a lot of pockets output at the time. Um, I entered their first strange new worlds writing contest, uh, for short stories for unpublished writers, kind of on a dare from someone. And they picked my story as one of the ones that won that first year. So now the bug had, you know, I've been bitten. So I started writing other stories to submit to other markets like Analog and Asimov's and uh, whatever else was out there back in the far off 90s and uh, getting rejected, you know, like you do when you're just starting out. Um, and then the second and third Strange New Worlds contest rolled around each successive year. And I placed a story in those three or those two. And at that time, John Ordover uh, called me when he on the occasion of him buying the third story for the third contest, he says, well, now you're ineligible. You can't enter the contest anymore because now you're, you know, air quote, professional writer, unquote. Um, I think you should consider writing a Star Trek novel for me. So having never written anything longer than a short story in my entire life, naturally I said yes, uh, because that's what writers do apparently is you always say yes to the gig and you figure it out later. Um, I spent a good year, year plus, developing a novel and a, and a manuscript and they didn't even schedule it for publication until I had delivered the manuscript and John was satisfied with it. Hmm. Um, so that's how I got started. And then how, I did how not long ex- was that? I'm sorry, Dayton. How long was that process again from start to finish on the first well novel? Over a year. Um, wow. Well over a year, probably. And, and then there was probably another year that went by before it was actually published. Um, okay. So I, in fact, I was finishing it 
when the SCE novella series was ramping up and Keith had written one of the first three and uh, Kevin, my writing partner, my eventual writing partner and I, Kevin Dilmore, uh, were tapped to write a couple of those early on in the series. Those actually came out a year before the novel that I had written, uh, just because that's the way things work in publishing. Um, and that started the hellish trip that I've been on <laughs> since then. <laughs> you say that like you don't like it. There are days. <laughs> <laughs> there are always days. Yeah. No matter what you days. Do. Yeah, yeah. Mama said there'll be days um, like this. And I think that's probably true with any profession, of course. Yes. Um, so you both have mentioned collaboration. Do you like working collaboratively with another author? Do you prefer to work totally alone or do you get great satisfaction of good bouncing ideas off someone else? How, what, what do you prefer? You want me to take that one? Yeah, you go first. first. Okay. I... I, I've had a very uh, positive and rewarding collaborative experience with my partner, Kevin Dilmore, for the better. Well, now it's over 20 years. Thank you for that reminder of my mortality. <laughs> um, but I also like writing alone. Uh, mm. But it, even when I write alone, uh, I'm still usually bouncing ideas off Kevin anyway. Oh, cool. Okay. Uh, so even even when he's not on the book, he's kind of in the book to the varying mm -hmm. degrees. Mm -hmm. um his his job is he is a product developer and a senior writer at hallmark cards so um his his, his he and i have completely different backgrounds so he he gets to write stuff for hallmark and i write solo material and every once in a while we come together and and wreak havoc for somebody nice. like keith yeah, <laughs> yeah the the one of the joys of, of working in a shared world or, or a tie-in world that's very uh cohesive like what the star trek novels have been a lot of the time uh, and what, particularly with the Starfleet Corps of Engineers series that Dave mentioned, that that, that ran from 2000 until 2007, uh, and I was I was the editor in, in charge of that. Yes, and I and and I wrote a lot for it, as did Dayton and Kevin. And um, uh, plus, like some of the miniseries we've done, like the A Time Two series in 2004, uh, all the way through to mm -hmm. the Coda trilogy oh, yeah. that, that uh, Adina's started reading. Um, that yes that one and uh, all of that is also very collaborative even if, if individual people are writing certain novels there's there's a level of, of mm -hmm. collaboration in the in the core of engineer series we were very much doing it like almost like a tv show uh where you know different writers were taking on different characters and we were building on what people had done in the past um the time two series especially that was so much fun that was that was basically bridging the gap between insurrection and nemesis uh what the enterprise he was doing particularly in the year leading up to Star Trek Nemesis. And, um, you know, it was it was several two-book series by John Bornholt, by Dayton and Kevin, and Bob Greenberger, David Mack, and then I did the concluding volume. And it was great working together on it. You know, mm -hmm. we were all, you know, throwing ideas at each other and bouncing things off each other and picking up on things other people did, uh, you know, and doing it as this sprawling storyline. Uh, and it was it was incredibly satisfying um as as a collaborative endeavor that was uh up until that point with the time two books um because kevin and i were a late addition to that effort um keith david bob greenberger and john vornhol had already been established and there were there i think the plan had was originally for 12 books so six writer two books each but that got whittled down to nine i don't know i still don't remember the reasons why and uh but kevin and i stepped were, were called up when another writer had to bow out of the project. Mm. So up until that point, we were 
kind of we were not in what I called the starting lineup of the novelists at that point. Um, I consider that project our call up from the miners. So mm. uh, and because we've that was basically I think that's where we started publishing fairly consistently among the novel line rather than just the SCE books and the occasional short story. So, so how do the books fit in with just the canon of what we see yeah. on the screen? Thank this you, Adina. That was well, my question. Well, and, you and got me to it. What's really bugging me is because if, and for anyone who doesn't want the book spoiled, pause here, go read the first yeah. book of Coda and then come back um, in a few minutes. So, cause I'm going to, I'm going to say <laughs> what's really bothering me is in, it's in a this short book, book, only a few minutes. Well, yeah. So only a few minutes. Oh, you mean, okay. No, no, okay. But I guess what I'm saying is, is in this book, Crusher and Picard have a kid. Yep. Which I love. I love that. I just okay, so bugged me that it wasn't used. The <laughs> the novel line, uh first of all, the only thing that is canonical, and and that's a phrase I hope I, I would that's a word I really would could live my entire life without ever hearing ever again. And I would uh, sorry. <laughs> uh it's not yeah. your fault. Um the 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 obsession over over obsessing over what's real in a fictional construct has gotten completely out of hand. Mm -hmm. Um what 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 is canonical what is uh is the stuff that other people who write star trek have to, have to pay attention to is what's on screen the tie-in material has to be consistent with it um but stuff will happen on screen that will contradict it at some point which is inevitable novels reach less than 10 percent, often less than one percent of the audience for a tv show or a movie that's a good point yeah. um mm -hmm. so the the you know it's like to, to use another space opera franchise that begins with the word star as an mm -hmm. example, J.J. Um, <laughs> Abrams was not going to force his million dollar, billion dollar movie to be consistent with a series of novels that, you know, a few thousand people had read. Um, so, of course, those novels were going to get sent into the cornfield once The Force mm -hmm. Awakens happened. Um, in the case of the Star Trek fiction from... Basically, to that, from, from the turn of the millennium onward, the focus of on-screen Star Trek was the 22nd century and the 23rd century. You know, you had Enterprise, then you had the Bad Robot movies, and then you had Discovery. So for the for the first 20 years of the new millennium, nobody was really doing anything on-screen with the, with the 24th century and beyond. So the novels were free to do whatever the mm -hmm. hell we wanted. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, yep, yep. and we did. Um, we did things like have... Picard and Crusher get married and have a kid. Uh, we, so, they did adventures of, with Riker on the Titan and such, mm -hmm. which lasted right up until January of 2020 when Star yeah. Trek Picard debuted, at which point it, it all, all died. The window. Yeah. So now, uh, which, which has happened before. I'm sorry. Let me just finish the rant. <laughs> um, uh, this has happened before. The opening scene of Star Trek The Motion Picture negated James Blish's Spock Must Die novel. Mm -hmm. um, the movie First Contact overwrote uh, Judith and Garfield Stevens, Stevens' novel, Federation. Um, oh, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. You know, um, and, but it doesn't change. The, I mean, people still consider Federation to be one of the top 10 Star Trek novels ever written. The fact that it's inconsistent with First Contact is irrelevant. First Contact is still considered one of the better movies. Um, it. I, it's not worth stressing over what's real in a fictional construct. Like I said, the, the tie-in fiction came up with 843 different reasons for the difference between the bumpy-headed Klingons and the smooth-headed Klingons, <laughs> all of which was then overwritten by Enterprise when they finally decided sure. to explain. And, and, you know. 
And I'm not <laughs> fanatical about about canon, it, it, but it's really it's like major things like like that, right? That Picard and Crusher have this kid Renee, and now mm-hmm. once we see Picard on the screen, they have right. this other kid that Picard didn't know about. You know, just just big the big stuff like that. But I, I guess my question then is, at the time that this was written, which was obviously before the Picard series came out, when you're making a major ish decision and I feel like Picard and Crusher feel like that should be a majorist decision does do you is that where I guess the developmental editors or people at CBS step in and approve I, I guess they have to approve these novels so they, they approve they, everything they approve yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. the, like I said for the for up until up until Patrick Stewart decided yeah sure I'll yeah. be again there was no sure. yeah, anything okay. on the screen with the 24th century characters so sure. say the uh the decision to marry them and have them have a kid that's god that's ages old now it's 2010 still feels major years because like you said you know there was you know they were giving us a tremendous amount of latitude because there was absolutely no way in hell that they would ever re- ever revisit <laughs> star trek in the 24th century let alone with those characters that we already knew mm-hmm. so could never happen Ding dong you're wrong <laughs> yeah right um never say so, never yeah yep. never that's the one thing in star trek is never say never never yeah. say die and never say never <laughs> uh, even then and even then <laughs> So you're, and you're, you picked up what's basically uh, the culmination of that line of storytelling that we began 20, almost 20 years ago. If you go all the way back to the first DS9 relaunch novel, Avatar. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, more than con- 20 years ago. That was 2001. Uh, okay, thanks, well, man. We really need wow. to have, we need to really wow. Semantics, <laughs> you know. I'm feeling um, older now because yeah. of you. So you know, we we were able to spin this continuity that basically threaded through. You know, I don't. I didn't even try counting all the novels, but it's you know got to be a bazillion. A bazillion. Yes. I tried counting. Point. It was a bazillion. I mean, when you count the ebooks and short stories mm-hmm. and everything else, it's mm-hmm. a bazillion. Um, and multiple authors across all those years, and you know. It's all gone with literally a line of dialogue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, right, right. you know, just but that's the job. <laughs> we knew it was dangerous when we took it. So, it, and, and this always happens with tie-in fiction. You know, I, 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 I wrote a Farscape novel where, uh, which took place, you know, in the middle of the show's second season, um, and there was, and again, there was one line of dialogue that negated my entire story later in like the fourth <laughs> season of the show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is that do you, is it frustrating or are you used to it and or can you shrug it off? I like part of it. the job. Okay, so yeah, there. I guess so I, I don't there. stress about what's real in a fictional construct. You know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, fair, fair. That's fair. Okay, That's fair. so Captain, Bo- so I mean, not Captain Picard. Patrick Stewart comes on stage. He's like, "I'm back." Was there any like, okay, we gotta, we're gonna have to have a meeting and figure out how we're gonna address? Oh, the new, like that, the new like canon. He's still on stage, and I'm already emailing people like we have a problem. <laughs> Um, <laughs> oh man! So that was what the fall of twenty eighteen, twenty nineteen. I forget. I, what I, 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 was, I was. I was there in twenty twenty. I think it was twenty eighteen. Eighteen. It was twenty eighteen because it was twenty yeah. fall of twenty nineteen. We had just finished construction right. of the house, and I remember sitting in my old office in twenty yeah, when he was announcing that. So yes, twenty eighteen. Okay, I remember yeah. it was a good day. I bought my car, was on a date, was yeah. going well, and then Patrick Stewart's like, "Oh, I'm back," and I'm like. This thing so, can get like better. the best day. Yeah. So, so I, I was sitting at I was sitting in the audience at Star Trek convention when he came out to do that, nice. and all of a sudden everybody's phones lit up like kaboom! Oh my god, what did you just yeah. announce? You know. So 
yeah, the preliminary, well, this is going to be interesting thought flashed across our brain pans while he's on stage. Um, once they stood up a writer's room and they started developing the concepts for the show, by this point, um, I was working as a consultant to uh, Paramount Global on the consumer product side. So I was seeing the scripts for Discovery and uh, the other shows that were in development. So the first thing I got was a backstory document that Kirsten Beyer had written for writers of Picard. And it basically was a very brief, high-level history of Star Trek for the points that were relevant to what they were going to be doing, and including backstory that they were inventing for the show. Uh, this included the Mars attack in 2385, which mm. is the atomic bomb that lit up in our backfield uh, as far as the novels were concerned, because we were past that point in the timeline by mm. a significant amount of time, almost two years. So we're like, well, we can't pretend that didn't happen. We can't just decide it <laughs> happened. You know, it's like, well, now what do we do? So um, I'd already been sketching out a thought, uh, thoughts about what to do with the books. And uh, unbeknownst to me, but I should have known better, uh, Dave Mack and a couple other folks, maybe. And I think Keith was even involved. It was, it was me, 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 David Mack, James Swallow and Glenn Hellman. Right. We were at so, a party. <laughs> they uh, they get they they get to be talking and then so yeah. they decide that we're gonna they're gonna pitch this idea to Pocket and CBS but they're gonna rope me in first before they do that. So Dave Mack and I sat down at Shorely the convention in the summer of 2019 and he lays out his master plan and I let him get through it before I broke his heart. I was like, it's a great idea, but it's so much worse than you think it is, dude, because he didn't have any access to that information that I had. So mm. I said, so we, so between the two of us, we started coming up with a tentative plan to, to figure out what we were going to do. And then uh, we got back to Jim Swallow and we talked with some other folks and that is what CODA is, is <laughs> okay. uh, our attempt to make it all make sense. Hmm. Okay. Since so, you're reading it, I'm not going to engage in any spoilers. Yeah, no, I'm about, I'm, oh, this, okay, I'm, this, I'm this far into it. I'm not that into, far into in. the first of three books. So well, yeah. Yeah, well, because I, I had started with Articles of Federation, I got this far, and I was like, oh, wait, I got to read Dayton's, at least some of Dayton's book before today. So that's when I got, picked this one up. And, you know, there's so many other things to read. And I also, I'm very curious about this line of, of books, too, that I, uh, the Hidden Universe Travel Guides. So I'm, I'm holding up Star Trek Vulcan. It's huh. just, it's a travel guide to Vulcan. By exactly what it says to be. Dayton Ward. Yep. It's like, it's, this is, this is also, this is a wholly different kind of writing style writing thing how did the travel guides and there was one for uh, konos there's one for the klingon empire yeah, as klingon, well. okay uh, that one came first the vulcan one um okay. it's this when did it come out 2016 so 2015 i was approached uh by an editor at inside editions mm-hmm. um they had pitched this idea to cbs or paramount global but back then it was cbs consumer products and they said, we want to do this travel guide. We need somebody who can write in a strong in-world voice. Uh, and my name was one of the ones that they uh, put forth, CBS put forth. And so I started talking with the editor and we started spinning ideas on what to do with this thing. And they put me to work and the le- the rest is a mystery. Um, <laughs> I know I had a lot of fun with it. I mean, I, I, I started with looking. <laughs> yeah, I started with, uh, you know, everything we knew about Vulcan. Uh, you know, the different points mm-hmm. of interest in historical places and other known locations. And once I had those six, uh, I filled out the rest of the book, you know, with uh, stuff I made up, stuff I interpreted from wow. other sources like the role playing game materials and some of the novels. There are some fairly deep cut references in there. But if you're just a casual fan and you're flipping through this thing, it's just Vulcan stuff to you. But if you're <laughs> a hardcore nerd who's been with us for the last 30, 40, 50 years, you're hopefully see some nice Easter eggs in there. Mm-hmm. 
Hmm. I haven't Did you, read Reddit. Um, I've paged through it. But I haven't. Well, I haven't let, actually sat there and read it. But um, my next trips to Italy, then I'll get to Vulcan. So, um, well, I so, wrote it like a real travel guy, which is you like, don't that's read what it looks like. That's, that's, that was my question to you, Dayton. Did you read travel guides to get a flow for how the book should yeah. be? I based okay. them off a couple of Lonely Planet guides uh, and Frommers, and took the best the best components as far as structuring the books. Uh, Cause I wanted it to have a, I wanted to have that feel like it's something you stuck in your backpack when you go on vacation. Uh, and I also didn't want it to be written by Vulcans. I wanted it to be written by like, you know, under overworked, underpaid travel writers in some office in New York where there's no air conditioning and everybody smells like socks. I wanted it to look like that. <laughs> so that's why there's humor in the book. Um, Cause everybody's like, I've gotten reviews where it's like, well, he's, very humorous that's too much for vulcans i'm like it's not vulcans who wrote it it's just some guy you know yeah. or some group of people mm -hmm. um so i feel the same like i thing. want more of these like i want one for bajor and for beta Z and for andoria like I, I, like that was i want more of them there were for, talks um, of doing ones and then the, the brain, pandemic what's, i don't yeah. what's that oh sorry can we get one for i don't know what the breen homeworld is called but well, i feel like travel, that could yeah. be fun i think there's the like no information of, uh, I think the list of qualifying or candidate planets is you know, pretty short as far as what we know about it. Um, mm. And also far, what we feel to a mass audience. Well, I was going to say, yeah, right, once you, get past, once you right. get past the big names, it's kind of hard to to justify. Uh, you know, I, I I volunteered the right and research for the RISA, or, you know, RISA oh. book, but um, they didn't want me to go to the – they didn't, they weren't going to pay for me to go to the Bahamas. <laughs> oh, I, I was going to say the Vegas, but, yeah, that's right. pretty good. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, and the Vulcan, you know – the Klingon one was kind of fun because I wrote it and then they came back to me like the day it was supposed to go to the printers and they said, we're two pages short or we're a page short. I forget what it was. Um, can you come up with something? So I, I basically created a full page ad for battle cruiser vengeance, which is the star <laughs> Trek show in the Klingon empire. So uh, that was like, that was like in the car I'm driving home from work. I'm like, uh, okay, I'll have it when I get home. So That's you fun. Know, weird things. That's fun. Pretty cool. Yeah. So, What's your um, process like when you sit down and you're like, okay, I've got to write this novel. I have an idea for a novel. Now where do I go? Well, you have to start with an outline. that, And before you even write a single word of the thing, that outline has to be approved both by your editor and by somebody at, uh, what's Param it called now? Paramount? Paramount. Paramount, Paramount Plus, a mountain of yes. entertainment. <laughs> yes. No, the, the name keeps changing. But uh, it's, it's been, mind you, it's been the same set of people who've been approving Star Trek fiction going back a very long time, which is wonderful. Uh, mm. The guy the guy in charge of it is a guy named John Van Sitters, uh, aided and abetted currently by this gentleman sitting with us, um, which is which is great. Uh, John John is wonderful to work with, um, but he's, he's the one who has to approve it. Uh, and once the outline's approved, then you sit down and write it. Um, so uh, it, in, in, in the plotting versus pantsing discussion, there, there is no pantsing when you're writing tie-in fiction um, <laughs> because you, you can't, you know, everything has to be approved by the people who own it. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the process. You know, you, you write the outline first. Sometimes, as I said before, it's, it's done in collaboration with your editor. Sometimes it's done in collaboration with the other two people writing the other two books in the trilogy. Um, you know, that, that will vary, but, and everybody has a different, style of doing the outline mine tends to be i don't know eight or nine pages oh wow um, sometimes they're shorter sometimes they're longer i did one that was only a couple pages i've got nothing on mac mac writes like 750 page outlines <laughs> or books or you know that's, that's amazing and for our listeners that might not be familiar with the terminology so a pantser is 
someone who writes by the seat of their pants versus oh, a plotter okay. who is someone who outlines pretty rigorously. Um, and then there's Plantser, which is where I fall in, which is kind I of a blend. Ask. It's a blend of the two. Um, mm-hmm. And it's really actually, I'm a recovering Pantser. I realize pantsing does not actually work and I needed to plot a little bit, but I don't want to <laughs> over plot. And, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that said, there are instances where you kind of pants it or plants it because you might get to some point in your outline you realize well that was the stupidest thing i've ever thought of in my life that's not gonna work at all (laughs) so or hey we're writing a duology because they they plugged us in late in the process and we thought we had enough material for two books but we really don't so let me pull Mm. this subplot out of some heretofore unlabeled orifice (laughs) (laughs) or my favorite one one of my uh i I wrote a, a bunch of books that take place on a klingon ship um and uh, in one of the books, I did not realize I needed to kill off my first officer character until I was writing his death scene. And it rather wow. caught me off guard. And and hmm. I had to like email my editor, who then emailed uh, John Van Sitters and said, uh, we need to kill this guy. And this was like a guy who guest starred in one episode of Deep Space Nine. So it's not like we're talking about a major character. Um, but. I can't kill him without permission. <laughs> right. Um, luckily, they were okay with. It, I really like, and, and that was not planned at all. It was there was nothing mm-hmm. in the outline that called for that. But as I'm writing it, mm-hmm. I realized, no, I got he's got to die. This will not work unless he dies. So, do you guys do you guys have a particular book that you've written that you are exceptionally proud of, or when you want someone to read your work and that could be in or outside of Trek too. That doesn't have mm-hmm. to be just in, in the fandom of Trek. So is there a particular book you're proud of and you want people to read? If, if there's one book they have to read that has your name on it. Is that even yeah. an answerable question? <laughs> <laughs> read all of them. <laughs> right. Which which one of your children do you want to introduce to people? Kind of like you're saying, you know. Yeah, which one? <laughs> oh, that's even tougher. <laughs> well, it's, it's the equivalent. I mean, for me, I, two two of the books I'm proudest of are both Star Trek books, as it happens. Mm. Uh, one is the one Adina is reading, Articles of the Federation, and and part of why I'm I'm so pleased with that book is that the I basically created the Federation government more or less because we'd never seen it on screen. So I want to ask about that. Yeah, well, we're going to circle yeah. back to that in a minute. Um, but also that that novel continued to have tremendous influence because in this continuation of the 24th century that we were doing in the fiction while it, while uh, the TV shows and the movies were ignoring it, um, the stuff I, I developed in that book was then used by other novelists and the character of President Baco, who, by the way, was was based, more or less based on my great grandmother, um, continued to be used in several works of fiction, which was just thrilling as hell for me. Um and and there was another use of the character, which will constitute a spoiler, albeit for a 10-year-old book. But um, suffice it to say, uh, a major thing involving President Baco was the catalyst for a major storyline, which was uh, I had mixed feelings about. But um, the but th- that just the fact that it, it continued to have that level, I figured it would be a one and done thing that, you know, maybe there might be an occasional reference mm. to the to President Baco after that, but she wound up becoming a major supporting character in the fiction, which which was wonderful. The other is a novel called The Art of the Impossible. Oh, yeah. Which is a novel that covers about 18 years of history. Um, between it's it's part of a series we did of uh, called The Lost Era, which is books that take place between Kirk's death at the beginning of Generations uh and the launch of the Enterprise D in Encounter at Farpoint. There's about 70 years of time there. 
uh, that's mostly unexplored. Uh, and I'm just really proud of how that book came out. It's this big sprawling political epic involving the Klingons and the Cardassians. Um, and, and I'm just really proud of it. So, so before we leave this book for a second, because I do want to ask, because what, what's amazing to me is, as I'm reading Articles of Federation is because, oh, yeah, you have the president of the Federation and the Federation is pretty expansive. There's a bazillion worlds and races. How the heck do you, are you keeping track of like what is your like process for keeping track of all of this? I, I spreadsheets mostly. Okay, <laughs> I, that, that's fair. But is that is that I mean are is that what you're doing? Because there's a lot to keep track of. Yeah, um, no, I, I, have, yeah. I, have a, I have a bunch of lists of different mm-hmm. you know characters and worlds and stuff, um, and and which I was consulting regularly when I was writing the book. Okay of people in different positions, you know, almost a dramatis personae, which I probably should have had one in the book itself. <laughs> well, I, I, I have had a couple of times to go back and be like, did I, is that the same name as I saw a couple pages ago? You know, like, and everything just to make sure that, you know, especially if I'm reading like a chapter here and then a few days later, a chapter here, it's like, I just got to go back um, and refresh well, yeah, myself. But I'm pretty, imp- it's very impressive. <laughs> Thank you. Cool. Okay. So Dayton, what was your, your, your favorite? Uh, it's hard to say because um, I generally don't like anything I write. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm I don't I don't get that attached to it or wrapped around the axle about it. It keeps I try to I figure that keeps me humble, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if I had to pick a couple as far as like introducing someone to my writing, uh, they're both Star Trek novels. One is called it's a TOS novel um, called From History Shadow, uh, where I combine elements of Trek history with real world history, specifically areas dealing with UFO conspiracy theories and the space program and the Cold War. And then, of course, Enterprise or I mean, Star Trek plot points from Enterprise and DS9. So, like, we start with the Roswell landing, which, of course, in the Star Trek world, that was the Ferengi. Mm-hmm. And then it oh, proceeds yeah, forward. Right. So, you know, we, we have the genesis of uh, Project Blue Book and uh, Majestic 12 and all the UFO stuff that came later as far as the conspiracy people. And then I mix in elements of Enterprise. So like Mistral, the Vulcan who stayed behind in the Carbon Creek episode. Mm-hmm. It was, oh, yeah. uh, you know, Gary Seven and the Aegis people from from Assignment Earth. They're in there because why not? And uh, it was a passion project that I had pitched a couple of times to different editors and they both, you know, said no. And then finally an editor took pity on me and let me write it. Uh, <laughs> I, got, I, got, I thought I got it out of my system. And then uh, they came back and said, you know, that one did pretty well. You, you got another one of those in you. <laughs> so, mm. and that became, so can, it was the start of a trilogy. I really never intended to write. So can, can you give me the that. name of that book again? Called From History's Shadow. It's an original series novel, and the, the cover is is fun because it looks like the Men in Black and some little flying saucers on the front, uh, which is as close as I could get them to go with my idea of making it look like a pulp science fiction novel from the fifties. Um, you know, you other- mentioned Ferengi for a minute. That would be another good travel guide. Is the Ferengi? What is it? Ferenginar? The, the yeah, Ferengi homeworld. Okay. That was a little aside. Ferengi umbrella. <laughs> We, it was we've had a, I have a list of uh, planets that I thought I even pitched an idea where I could combine three or four planets, you know, even just to. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, all things in time, I guess I never I've learned to never say never when it comes to this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would yeah, that, I guess that's a good one to start people on. Cool. I think I'll buy it. Mystery <laughs> <laughs> Shadow is. is possibly my favorite book of yours just because it it i just love the way you tied everything together you know the the not not just not just the stuff you mentioned but also uh, captain christopher and and uh 
uh, from tomorrow's yesterday. And mm. uh, oh, and, you got you deal with him too. That's awesome. Yep. I got to read that now. I, I I referenced a lot of uh, UFO books that were written in the fifties. Not a lot. I, re- I probably had close to a dozen. I looked at over the course of a year. Uh, books that were written during the fifties and the sixties when the UFO you know scare or craze was at its height. I think. Um, and just to get an idea of what they were writing about and what theories they were putting forth. And it was interesting because that's when I learned that the whole Roswell bit is not in that lore. It's not in the 50s and the 60s. It's something that came later. It's something that got it that got kind of like inserted back into that mythology. Huh. Damn it, X-Files. So right. <laughs> and what's pretty amazing is in real world 1940s and 1950s, I love to tell people about this or remind them how little we knew about the moon and Mars. Mm-hmm. You know, in the 40s and 50s, mm-hmm. nothing had we did not have up close high res pictures of the moon. We didn't really know what it, if we could land on it. We didn't know if we could get to it. You know, there was so much information that we take for granted now that we did not have at that time. Oh, yeah. It might actually have been made of cheese. Yes. Ooh, yep. Gouda. Yep. Yum. Yep. Gouda. Huh? Okay. Mm-hmm. Whatever. <laughs> so, so circling up back to the process, your, your process a little bit. So, h- how much time do you guys spend writing, and how much is it? Is it doing the outlines versus just hardcore writing? Do you do any self editing along the way? What's your pro- writing process I mean, like? The, t- the amount of time I spend on it is the amount of time they've given me to write it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. And then sometimes a little more. <laughs> sometimes a little less. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, what, what what is that usually? I mean, what is that typically? I don't know what Keith does, but I mean, I by the I write an outline, and it might take a month to get it written and reviewed and revised and then approved by the studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that point, uh, I typically get three to four months to write the manuscript. Uh, it depends. Okay. I mean, it's been as little as three. It's been as much as five or six. But the but the but the sweet spot seems to be about four months. And that's kind of a holdover from when I was working full time while writing. Um, mm-hmm. My editor took pity on me, uh, and so I I mean when I so back in those days I would write in the evening and on the weekends after after working at my day job. And and now I write. You know, I try to write four or five hours a day at minimum. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I get on a roll, then it's more. Uh, if I'm having, you know, writer, writer, whatever, writer crises, then it might be less. And then I have to make up mm-hmm. that time somewhere. Uh, but once they lock you in, uh, it's it's hard to move that that needle if you are running into trouble because there's a whole production train that's, you know, moving alongside you while you're working. So if you screw up, you upset the apple cart and every other analogy I can come up with. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you, you put a lot of people, you know, you, you twist a lot of people's intestines when you're late with your manuscript. So, particularly if it's part of a series or part of you know something that's already been scheduled or right. or, or tying into a particular event or something, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, it was, it was funny because I was actually writing um, when I was writing a time for a time for peace, the last book in the in the attention series. I was actually writing it at the same time that Dave Mack was writing the book prior to it. <laughs> um, wow. Mind you, we were having lunch every week and like comparing notes and stuff. So we, we you know, it was, it was, it was, was kind of like Coda. We were writing all three books simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of back and forth and spreadsheets and crying and drinking and yelling and, you know, plotting of murders. Mm-hmm. And things. <laughs> are you, are you a... working on one project at a time yourself or you got multiple projects at any given time? <laughs> Uh-oh. One project at a time. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> How quaint. No. Yes. <laughs> 
No. I yeah, mean, I've I got like, like you know twelve different things happening right now. Oh, <laughs> wow. Cool. Nice. Boy. At various stages. So I mean, some of them are just me sitting around waiting for an editor to you know get back to me on a proposal. Uh, in one case, it's waiting for a contract to finally materialize. Um, I'm working on a comic script. I'm working on. A, I've got three short stories that I need to write. Uh, two of which are Star Trek. Um, I'm sorry, four short stories I need to write. Two of which are Star Trek. Um, and and a bunch you know other things in very one thing I'm waiting for edits back on you know so that's like there, there's it's it's very much like juggling eggs. Um, you're gonna drop one, yeah, because yeah, you're still working also on the Enterprise rewatch, which I love by the way. Yes, and, yes, I've also, and and yeah, I've got I've got at least two articles a week for for Tor.com. There's the my Enterprise rewatch, and I'm reviewing uh, the new shows as they come out. The worst was July because I I was I was reviewing. You know the new episodes of Strange New Worlds as they came out, and I was also I had gotten months ago I had I they said I was going to review Secret Invasion. We did not know until shortly before it happened that both Secret Invasion and Strange New Worlds were going to be deb- running at the same time. Ooh. <laughs> uh, so that was fun. Um, of course, you know, and now this conversation has reminded me that I have to write a short or an article before I go to bed tonight Ooh. that I forgot about. But hey, thanks oh. everybody. Appreciate Sorry. the help. <laughs> We're here for you. No yeah. problem. Anytime. It's okay. We can help I, you I, write. I write. We can brainstorm right here. We can help you write. <laughs> well, I have, to, I have to actually write my review of uh, this week's Lower Decks, which is going live tomorrow. Thank you. Um, I have to cool. say, yeah. I agree ahead, with Chris. you on the. On the Vulcan, like just just a quick rant, but on the whole thing where it's like Vulcans were always kind of a little bit jerky. They weren't suddenly <laughs> mean in Enterprise, you know. <laughs> they were always kind of like that. So I think you're right. Yeah. Totally agree. Um, quick question. I don't mean to imply, but do you <laughs> often get any type of mail <laughs> from your readers that go, "No, Keith, I'm sorry, Dayton, you're wrong in this page. This you ever get those types of responses yeah and how do you respond to them i don't i've got a voodoo doll collection um oh okay good (laughs) ow sorry (laughs) that explains a lot steve doesn't it (laughs) no i don't i i don't have any problem with legitimate criticism because i'm a critic also so i'm not about to cry foul when it happens to me okay that's Um, good i mean if i screw something up i screwed it up i i wrote a supernatural novel where i got dean's eye color wrong um and and (laughs) i and 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 i i and in my next supernatural book i had somebody in in the book get dean's eye color wrong with dean saying how could they pop with the same wrong color and saying god how, what kind of idiot would think i would have that eye color so you know i figured we, you know, uh, i got a piece of email about four or five months ago from somebody who'd read one of our sce ebooks and they were complaining that because our storyline uh has a, a, our 24th century crew of engineers uh stumbling across the the defiant from the original show in the, you know, the Tholian web episode. Mm -hmm. And they were taking us to task because we had disregarded uh, what was (laughs) shown in the enterprise episode, you know, in a mirror darkly. Mm -hmm. And like, well, I'm sorry, but I wrote, we wrote that story five years before that episode came out. <laughs> you couldn't predict the future? How dare you? You know, you mean, like, how you dare mean I the... not travel to the future to figure out what they were going to do? M- Manny Coda <laughs> didn't call you up and say, hey, uh, we're going to do this. Uh, can we give you your insight? We don't want to have any contradictions here. You know what I mean? They don't do that. You I get the occasional so. I uh, so. complaint about, uh, I had a, I think I had a character say, damn it, in a, in a manuscript. And 
uh, a, a reviewer took me to task because now I have to read the books and see if they're suitable for children. And, oh my uh, goodness! But this well, show, they thought David Jim. Do you not remember David Jim? <laughs> like if you never heard me talk, <laughs> Star Trek Four. Hello. Yeah. Um, right. You were trying uh, to get discovery. <laughs> discovery. Discovery. Salty language. So, yeah. So you know what? I guess for me, I'm I'm one of these Star Trek novel fans. I just love that there's extra material, and especially when you talk about the drought we had with no new shows for so many years, like having the novels was invaluable. And even if I came across something, I'm like, I'm I'm like, I kind of like have a, um, like, I'm just glad I'm reading something Star Trek. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not, I'm not one of those, you know, Oh, this has to be this and this and oh, they said this and that and the other thing. So um, I'm just very grateful for guys like you that are, putting out this extra material for us fans to enjoy mm-hmm. um and read so i just want to say thank you for that um and and maybe there are some fans that need to chill out a little bit yeah, for crying out loud and just be bit. glad yeah. they have something to read and and just take it for the fun it's supposed to be you know just I'm, enjoy I it this I tried well, a few it's, fun for us. It. it's fun for us. I didn't us. know that. Nobody told me. <laughs> it's um, work for you, but fun for us. Yes. Oh, mm-hmm. oh no, it's both. I mean, I've been, I've been watching. I have literally been watching Star Trek since birth. Yeah. Um, and and it it, I it has been one of the pleasures of my life to be able to write Star Trek fiction. Um, mm. and 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 furthermore, to to be writing about it for Tor.com as well, and and other and other sources as well. I've been, I've I've written quite a bit of uh, nonfiction material about Star Trek. Um. And and it's been it's been wonderful. I mean, it's it's a world I'm particularly fond of, mm-hmm. um, and have been for as long as I can remember. Uh, and so so it's tremendous fun for for me, and I assume for Dayton. Um, no, no, I'm just kidding. No, I actually no. It's, it's it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's 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 not something I set out to do, but uh, being a lifelong fan of the show, it's a tremendous privilege. And uh, you know, when I get when we get comments like that from from people who are obviously very passionate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I try to I try to view those comments through that lens. It's like they're yeah, they good. wouldn't write if they didn't care. Um, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's that's why I tend not to engage in that sort of thing. Like I, you know, everybody's entitled to their opinion. They either spent their time, sure. they mm-hmm. at least spent their time, if not their money, reading what we wrote. So they're entitled to their opinion uh, and how they, however, the book strikes them. Uh, no, it's a, it is it's a, it's not a lot of people get to do this kind of thing, and they certainly don't get to do it for the kind of time that Keith and I have been doing it. So. Uh, I'm acutely aware of that. Mm. Try to keep it foremost when I'm taking on one of these projects. Yeah, you have to awesome. remember that it is fiction; it's not fact. You know. What? As oh, I, shut up, Steve. Shut I'm, up. Sorry. I'm sorry. I did. I just What's blow the bubble. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. I don't even know how you got on this podcast. Um, I, I tend to view the canon as far as like whatever was on screen. That's what really happened, and everything else is kind of a historical fiction. So, uh, mm-hmm. and even Roddenberry kind of played into that conceit a little bit. Um, mm. but, uh, that's how I, I mean, that keeps me from going insane because if you try to make sense of it all and make it all fit and line up and, 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 you know, yeah. timeline it out, it's like, you're just, you're just madness lies that way. Yeah. So, and honestly, I, in general, on-screen Star Trek is remarkably consistent given that it's been happening over almost 60 years now by yeah. a lot of different people. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, know? by and large, it works. I mean, I, yeah. I tend to, you know, it's like as long as they hit the high points, it's it's not yeah. quite as overt as like the Marvel sliding time scale or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It's like, I mean, most of the high points, the, the the big events that we all remember are fairly consistent as far as when they're portrayed or how they're portrayed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, little things here and there slip, but that's that's what happens sure. when you have this a property like this. It's been around this long um it's i can live with it i can make it work i mean and we get paid to make it work we get paid to figure out how to smooth over the rough edges so uh it's kind of fun i, I mean mm-hmm. that's part of the fun of, of doing especially doing the tie-in fiction is getting to take disparate parts of 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 the the, the fictional history and tie it all together in, in mm-hmm. various ways you know using different elements um you know i mentioned the lost era um series one of the fun things in that was to take stuff you know, extrapolate stuff that happened in the in the TOS movies and and what happened afterward, and you know, backfill some stuff that we knew learned about in the various twenty fourth century shows, um, and and try to sort of you know weave a little tapestry of what happened in those seven decades, um, and uh, or getting to do stuff like the Corps of Engineers, like uh, like the Vanguard series that Dayton mm-hmm. and Kevin and David Mack did, um, that there was sort of a, a parallel tos storyline of, of stuff that was going on elsewhere in the federation um you know we we uh there, there was a stargazer series that chronicled uh some of picard's early adventures uh on his first command um there was a titan series i did books on a klingon ship you know mm-hmm. uh peter david's new frontier series just the opportunity mm-hmm. to do other little explorations of of the star trek universe is is part of the fun um there was there was also for that matter um uh one of dayton's uh, discovery books was one that that brought tied together discovery with perk's backstory um, oh the support right okay with uh um kodos the executioner mm-hmm. um you know uh, being able to do stuff like that you know have have lorca and Giorgio being part of what happened what uh federation's response uh to that particular uh incident you know is, that's that's is, part of the fun is, of this is, is taking all little pieces and is it more enjoyable to write the characters that we know from the screen or to make up your own characters, like some of the side characters that are, or other characters that are in the novels that never show up on screen? Both. Okay. Yeah, both. Yeah. That's, that's what I always, uh, you know, worried about is that like it, I feel like it'd be hard to write someone else's character and keep the voice consistent. That's, it depends on the characters, you know, because my, my I'm, my familiarity with the different casts uh is on a scale that slides you know it starts with i'm I'm intimately familiar with the original show and to a slightly less extent next generation and then it just sorts of starts to slide after that because the shows haven't been around long enough for me to absorb it the way i have the original series um especially the newer shows um you know it'll be a while before we all figure that out um but writing in their voices is obviously one of our goals so one of the nicest things that people can say is, you know, I can hear William Shatner saying your lines. I can hear mm-hmm. Leonard Nimoy saying your dialogue. So that's that's a tremendous compliment. That's it means great. I got the right. I got it right. Uh, but at the <laughs> same time, writing a new character in those situations gives us freedom that we would never have. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's just the nature of tie-in work that uh, you have a little bit of both there. And then what we talked a lot about the, the novels. What about the short stories? Are those better worse more fun more pressure 
light blink out on me there for a second. What was going on? Oh no, all like, the lights in the background are working perfectly. Mothership is calling me back, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, that or it's my two-minute warning from my wife. I don't know what. <laughs> um, so, um, it's different, different kind of writing. Um, yeah. You know, I come up with a short story idea, and or I come up with an idea that I think might make a good book, but in reality, it makes a better short story. You know, or it's worth teasing out to become a novel. I, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't know that there's a a f- flat answer to describe that. I like them both for different reasons. That's fair. The, uh, the, there have been a but there were a bunch of especially in the uh, in the early two thousands there were there was a whole slew of uh, anthologies that came out. Besides, there was the Strange New Worlds anthologies, obviously that were that were opening up the to non professional writers. Uh, but there was also uh, the, the various anniversary anthologies that Marco Palmieri put together uh, for uh, for each of the the extant shows. Um, and uh and i and i also edited a couple of anthologies as did uh some other people uh there was the lies of dax anthology there was the uh, enterprise logs anthology the tales of the dominion war tales from the captain's table that i did uh new frontier anthology so there were a lot of short story opportunities um in particular the the, the tales of the dominion war anthology uh which came out in 2004 that's that's still in print we're still getting royalties on that damn thing hmm. um the the for whatever reason that that just really captured the zeitgeist um it's stories of basically what the rest of the star trek universe was doing during the dominion war um and that that has proven to be remarkably successful um and it's it, it, that and it's it's fun to do those little short stories you know stuff stuff that doesn't require necessarily a novel's length um but it's still a story worth telling lately um the the best venue for star trek short fiction has been the magazine star trek explorer uh what's been fascinating about that is that the stories have to be two thousand words that's not a lot of words <laughs> uh the I biggest longer chapters <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, i mean I've, re- I've written acknowledgement sections that are longer than that and- <laughs> your bibliography or your thank you know whatever keep the candle about the author goes like 17 pages or right uh, so, um and and so the biggest when i first started pitching to star trek explorer they rejected a whole bunch of them not because they didn't like it but because there was no absolutely no way i could tell that story in 2000 words they were right um mm. it's actually been a wonderful challenge for me as a writer to come up with ideas that can be told in that short amount of time and to really pare down what I've written. So I've written three so far and I've got two more coming, uh, pairing it down to its, you know, bare necessities. Um, and, uh, so, so that, I mean, that I'm enjoying as a writing challenge, as a way, you know, trying to tell interesting stories in that short amount of, of space. As I've, uh, not so much Keith because Keith has been doing this for so long and he knows how to adapt. But for some of the other writers who've come to me after they've gotten their pitch accepted to the bag, he says, what do what I do? I'm like, he said, like, first of all, resist the impulse to describe the Star Trek stuff because if they've bought a Star Trek magazine, chances are good that they understand all that already. So just get on with it. <laughs> and I'm, I'm looking forward to things writing like mine. that. You know, it's like, you know. yes. Very, very, very much looking forward to writing mine. And I, I really like short fiction and I love writing it. I love reading it for the longest time. I thought that was the only thing I was ever capable of doing was short fiction. Uh, mm-hmm. It was only in the recent years that I was like, hey, I, I can write novels. It works. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I'm I'm really looking forward to for, ah, <laughs> forward to <laughs> writing a, a and, Star Trek and for Brian and for Brian over there. That's his. Book. <laughs> cool. I'm well, doing some plugging. 
Thank you, Steve. Um, You're welcome. So Brian, Chris, Steve, do any of you have any final questions? Um, Yes. Go. Yeah, I'm I'm curious, just because you talked about a lot of the series, what's your Mm go-to series where you're like, I'm in the mood for Trek, but what would you watch? The Orville. No, I'm kidding. Orville? <laughs> pretty good. Like, I gotta not say, ga- not Galaxy Quest. Galaxy I, mean, Quest. Yeah. I was gonna say Galaxy. Chris did ask series. He asked series, not movie. He said series. Okay. Yeah, uh-huh. that's true. But Orville, I'll give that. That's actually really well done. Um, I'm an original series diehard fan, but uh, you know, I, I'll I'll spin up Next Gen, or um, I'm really digging Stranger Worlds. Uh, yeah, it's so. But there's good. not enough of it yet that you know to prompt. Uh, I think I'll binge. You know, I just we just got done mm-hmm. with it. Uh, but as far as the legacy shows, uh, classic and next gen are my two tops. But DS9, you know, it's neck and neck with DS9 and next gen uh, because I recently had to do a rewatch of several key episodes for a project to be named later. And okay. um, cool. cool. I'm like, you know what? I forgot just how good certain episodes are. And yes. then it becomes, mm-hmm. I forgot how good that se- You know what? This whole damn show is really good. <laughs> so, um, it's it's I yeah. it, I speak from you know like I said I'm a diehard fan of the original series but I honestly think that DS9 might be the best Trek series overall. I think wow. so. I think you're right. At least in my I, opinion, for whatever that's. I think it's the best written. I can go on about that forever. Yeah, Chris and I are <laughs> agreed. I think Deep Space Nine is. It's a shame fans left that show and didn't watch it in its original run. Um, because plenty of people watch it. I mean, it didn't. It didn't have the same ratings as Next Gen, but but that that doesn't mean it wasn't successful. It just means it wasn't as successful as Next yeah, Gen. Yeah, I, I can't um, speak for and, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I can't speak for anybody else. But mine, when they were running DS Nine, they ran it at twelve thirty in the morning on Sunday, the week after everybody else saw it. So it was like, if it came out on a Sunday, the fifth, I didn't get to see it till Sunday, the 12th after midnight. That's when it ran on my local station. Uh, I had to set the deep, you know, I just set the VCR. That's because, you know, that's how far back. Yeah. Yeah. Joys of 90s syndicated shows. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, no, I'm, I, I I don't have a series I go to necessarily, although I agree with all of you about, I, I think that DS9 is the strongest of the series overall. Um, I, with me, they're like particular episodes that I like to watch as my 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 mm-hmm. episodic comfort food, as it were. Uh, and they're from all the shows, more or less. There's like one or two episodes from each one uh, that I just like to watch just for the hell of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, uh, like Blood Oath on Deep Space Nine is one of my mm-hmm. favorites to sit down that's and watch. That part, that's partly because, you know, I'm, I'm Klingon guy. Um, you know, for that matter, there's several... Klingon focused episodes of Next Gen that I that are, that are among my go tos, uh, the Doomsday Machine on, on the original series one I always mm-hmm. like to watch. Just I just want to watch a Star Trek episode. That's one I almost always co- come to. Yeah, just me too. I, I love Doomsday. Interesting. Um, uh, and and for that matter, um, uh, ah, Living Witness on Voyager, mm-hmm. uh, which was the closest they came to a Mirror Universe episode. Um, just because <laughs> I love I love that whole the whole you know how history remembers things aspect of that episode and everybody was having so much fun. Mm. Uh, yeah. It was fun to see them be able to go evil, be like, okay, what would mirror universe Voyager look like? And that was, yeah, that was it. Yeah. And, and, ju- and just generally the, the, and, and of course, you know, the, the, the any, anything that focuses on the EMH is always worth watching. Awesome. Mm. Well, Keith and Dayton, thank you guys very much. Um, is there something that you want to play? Like, what is your most, recent book or story out that you might want to plug or tell people where to go, you know, what they should read. 
we should probably pimp the book that just dropped today because Keith oh, and I are okay. both in that one. Oh, yeah. um, it's uh, it's a it's a collection of essays called Galloping Around the Cosmos. Uh, <laughs> hang on for the subtitle here. Memories of TV's Wagon Train to the Stars. Something like that with some tales yes. of, as told by. I don't know. It's a it's from about a mile long. OK, OK. Uh, it's um, memories anyway, of it's, TV's Wagon Train to the Stars from today's grown up kids. There you go. It's, it's part basically of the collections. Paul, that it's the from today's grown up kids thing. That, that's yeah. like the, the subtitle mm-hmm. for all of them. So basically, uh, if, you're like, if you're like us and you grew up watching ruins of the original show pre Star Wars, pre Star Trek films, um, that's the. I mean, you know, and, and that's largely the people who contributed these essays. Some of the folks are younger, but um, for the most part, most of the contributors are, are our age, uh, which is what thirty one. So, so like I grew up as that in that world, and and how Star Trek, you know. It ended up influencing me in ways that I could never have anticipated. So a lot of the essays touch on those types of themes. Uh, that came out today. As a matter of fact, it's available in trade paperback and Kindle from Amazon.com. And I should mention also the latest issue of Star Trek Explorer has a story by me in it called The Collidian Kidnapping. Uh, that's the one with Ed Spoliers on the cover. Awesome. Well, great. And, you know, just like that, we have navigated the labyrinthine. Labyrinthine? I don't know how to pronounce that word either. The labyrinthine cosmos of the Star Trek litverse, all without a single encounter with the Borg or a subspace anomaly. Woo-hoo! That's a win. <laughs> so now if you weren't a Trek lit aficionado before, hopefully you're well on your way to become one now and we'll pick up one or more of Keith and Dayton's books or Star Trek Explorer or this new galloping, galloping, galloping. We will put links in. We'll put links. Okay. Okay. Well, again, thank you, Dayton. Thank you, Keith, for your time and for chatting with us. And thank you for extending the Trekiverse with your books. We really, we appreciate that. So we really do. And to our esteemed listeners, thank you for tuning in. If you want to interact and chat with us, Join our Facebook group or find us on Instagram. Instagram. What am I doing? Instagram. I can't uh, talk today. Instagram or Instagram. (laughs) Insta. Just add water to your Instagram to make a soup. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's okay. (laughs) Well, and of course, people can always drop us a note at the Big Sci Fi Podcast at gmail.com. And as always, we want to give a cosmic shout out to the Trek Geeks Podcast Network. We are proud to be a part of the Trek Geeks Network. And in addition to the Big Sci-Fi Podcast, you can find other really cool and entertaining podcasts at trekgeeks.com, one of whom, the Sci-Fi Sisters, Trek Geeks, Sci-Fi Sisters, and us, all three of us will be at Trek Long Island next spring. So get your tickets now. I'll be here soon. Yes. Sweet. Yes, we'll get to see Keith again in the flesh. So. As we drift back into the normal space-time continuum, remember to treat each other kindly, live long and prosper, and as always, tune in for the next galactic installment of the Big Sci-Fi Podcast. Coconut!